Lots of channels, nothing to watch, especially if you're searching for the truth. It's time to interrupt your regularly scheduled programs with something actually worth watching. Salem News Channel, straightforward, unfiltered, with in-depth insight and analysis from the greatest collection of conservative minds like Hugh Hewitt, Mike Gallagher, Sebastian Gorka, and more. Find truth. Watch 24-7 on SNC.TV and on Local Now, Channel 525. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We're back. It's Lifeline, Andy Froyland with uh, Joe Murray, our guest tonight. We're just trying to dissect some headlines. And boy, it seems like, Joe, we're just scratching the surface as we do this. There's just so much going on. Uh, let's, let's wrap up with Joe and uh, move forward. I want to I spend some time on the Supreme Court because we've had uh, Roberts yeah. out there doing some silly, silly stuff. And I want to get your take on it because you are a constitutional yeah. lawyer. So, but before we Absolutely. wrap up, before we move into the Supreme Court, I, I, I want your final thought and your personal pick. If you had to choose yeah. today, who is Biden going to pick as his running mate and why? Yeah, you know, that's a good one. For a while, I thought it was going to be the Stacey Abrams from Georgia because I was thinking that Georgia would be a great swing state, and she ran such a tight race for governor in that that now I'm believing to be purple state, no longer a solid red state. Right. I thought she was on there, but unfortunately she does not have the experience, which I talked about the last segment. People are going to be looking to see whether or not, I, I believe, Will that person he picks be able to be president day one? Because that's his vice president's going to have to do that. Uh, I, I'm leaning now a lot. You know, the governor Whitmer up in uh, up in Michigan. I thought she was on there for a while, but I think she had a huge debacle with the way she handled the COVID and her somewhat draconian restrictions. I think that she's too polarizing. Um, I think Biden is going to want to try to play it safe. And how he plays it safe is a senator from your state of California, Kamala Harris. I think yeah. uh, she brings the demographics to the table. I think she brings the safety net to the table. Uh, and I don't. I think Biden is feeling overconfident right now. I'm thinking he is thinking that Trump is losing this election, and that if he just holds steady and and plays this very conservative uh, conservatively, then he is going to be able to pull this out. And Kamala Harris, which is not. A, I wouldn't say you'd normally call her a conservative pick in, in the traditional sense. She is progressive. She is a woman of color. She is from California. You could argue she was a uh, prosecuting a U.S. attorney uh, or a prosecuting attorney. So she has a quote unquote law and order background. So she's kind of ticking all those boxes. So I can see the attraction for him to go with her. But I don't know what that's going to do to solidify him in those swing states if you go with a Democratic, you know, true blue politician who is somewhat outside the mainstream. And by the way, who, if we remember that first debate, schooled him very well on his position on busing. Right. Yeah, <laughs> so I can exactly. see that. Exactly. I can see I can see that advert being all over the place. But I see that's where he is going because she definitely would have the experience to take over as president day one. I don't know if the country would want her to do that, or I don't know if some of the country would want her to do that, but I can see where that portfolio would fit well with the Biden mentality. So that's, you know, I'm going to go with the popular one and say Kamala Harris is going okay. to be uh, the pick. All right. I'm going to hold you to it, and you're going to owe me a steak. 
<laughs> All right, there we go. I, I can do that. And if we're still in COVID, I'll have to send it uh, via mail. <laughs> you can just just make sure when you send the steak, it's got a mask on it. All right. <laughs> I'm just gonna say we'll have a mask. <laughs> oh, oh man, you got it. All right, so let's turn a turn a corner here. We've got just about seven minutes left, and that's not much, especially for this topic because it's uh, it's right into your wheelhouse as a constitutional lawyer. Roberts has been acting very liberal of late, and even a couple of the picks, uh, one of the picks from uh, Trump, uh, we've been getting some some really crazy signals from the Supreme Court of late. Um, I, I, I think of yeah. uh, abortion rights. Uh, what does that mean for the future of Roe v. Wade? Uh, there's just a couple of three other things going on as well. Um, what, yeah, what, what is your I take mean, on this? I mean, look, if you look at, let's look at the abortion decision. Um, ro- look, Roberts, I think is relishing the role as the swing vote because when you are the swing vote, you get all the attention. Right. Okay. That, because you get, you get everybody trying to woo you over to the side, uh, over to their side or your side, whatever you want to say. So yeah, the swing vote holds a lot of power. Um, and, and as much as we don't like to think of the Supreme Court as a political body, it is. And Robert, by being a swing vote, says, okay, I might go with you on, and I'm being very cynical, by the way, right now. Uh, but, you know, if, if I go with you on this, and I expect you to go with me on something that comes down the pike. So you have that potential going on. I'm not saying that's what's going on, but based upon my study of human nature, that swing vote has a lot of power. But let's talk about the actual case itself. You know, the law required that anybody providing an abortion service has to have credentialed or be credentialed by a local hospital. The law makes sense because if something goes wrong, wrong. with the abortion, you want to make sure that somebody, the doctor providing it, has credentials so they can get you to the hospital and take care of you. It's not controversial. Okay? Right, right. Um, but, and that's what blows my mind. And the people that brought the lawsuit were not the women, okay? It was not the women of Louisiana that were upset that this law had taken place. They were not the, uh, the plaintiffs in this case. The plaintiffs in this case were the abortion providers. Right. And I think if you look at what Justice Thomas wrote a great dissent, by the way, he called out the chief justice in his dissent, which I think is quite remarkable uh, that, that Thomas called him out. So kudos to Thomas, who yeah. always gets a bad rap for being quiet, but he was not quiet in that uh, dissent. His argument, which I think is a valid argument, was that, look, the people that brought the lawsuit don't have the standing. The, the abortion providers do not have the right to privacy, right? right? Yeah. Uh, an abortion provider does not have that right to an abortion. The person that has that right, according to Roe v. Wade, is the woman. And she is nowhere to be found in this case. So how can the Supreme Court rule on this case? Yeah. Uh, and, and that is the politics of the court. So Roberts, of course, decided that uh, he was going to go with the touchy-feely part of the law, saying, well, since this may cause some people to be troubled, therefore this law has to be unconstitutional. So Roberts, I thought, was you know joined a very sloppy decision. I think he, he was very unprincipled in his uh, joining with that decision. I mean, I, look – and I'm not going to say that just because George Bush or Donald Trump appoint a judge, they have to vote a certain way. Right. That's not how the system works. Exactly. Uh, the judge must be free to have his own opinion. The only requirement is, is when you do that, you have a principled, logical opinion based upon your previous decisions. And this is not in that category. Uh, I don't know what was going on here with Roberts, but something 
out of the ordinary occurred here. Uh, I don't know if he wants to be a swing vote. I don't know if his judicial politics is, uh, is, is evolving or changing or whatever you want to call it. But this was a slam dunk case. And I think, um, I think it's going to upset a lot of pro-life uh, activists, and rightfully so, because the law, I believe, was constitutional. Yeah, no, it, it's, it was just, it was simple. It was straightforward. It wasn't really all that political. Uh, it, was yeah. a, it, it was a decent law. And, and like you said, when, when you make a move that pulls Thomas out of his closet to actually say something, you're right, something else is going on that was, uh, you know, beyond the pale, I think. I mean, yeah, I've just, you know, like I said, of all people, Thomas, I can imagine, of course, Scalia back in the day would have no qualms calling out, but it's so out of Thomas's uh, character to do that. But you know what? With everything that's bad, uh, I will say the school choice decision that came down from the Supreme Court. That was um, good. You know, at least that gave me a little bit more faith. Uh, And by the way, before we before we leave to go to school choice, I want to say this. I think that what we're seeing with the Supreme Court is going to galvanize some of the voters this uh, this November because what we're looking at, if you get Donald Trump for four more years, you're looking at at least two people on the bench, Breyer and uh, and uh, Ginsburg, that I think are going to be not there much longer. Yeah. Uh, and you could really have a court where we don't need the swing vote anymore. Right. Okay. Yeah. You don't need uh, you don't need the chief justice anymore, and that's going to change the dynamic. It would be interesting to see where where the chief justice would go in that scenario. So the court is going to now be thrusted to the forefront of this election because if you get Joe Biden, of course, then everything that Donald Trump has done on the Supreme Court could be put to the wayside. Right. So yes, the court is going to be a huge issue. Uh, transitioning to that, the school choice uh, view, I think, is is actually a great decision in this time, because as we're in a climate where we're talking about the lives of people in inner cities, if we're talking about black lives, if we're talking about minority lives, one of the biggest problems, one of the biggest ways that this country has failed uh, minority populations, but also any population below the poverty line, is in education. Right. We continually send students to failing schools based upon their zip code. And what this law in Montana did is it basically said you could have public help to private schools, including religious schools. And my theory is if you really want to improve lives, whether they're black lives, Hispanic lives, uh, any type of lives, right, American lives, you give people access to a solid education. You give people access to an education based not upon their zip code, but based upon the excellence of the school. And I think this is a step in the right direction. This is the real social justice reform that I think we should be talking about, but we never do because it doesn't fit the left-wing narrative. School choice could lift so many people out of poverty. You lift people out of poverty, you lift people out of a criminal element, and not saying they're criminals, I'm saying that they're living around people that might be criminals. You get them out of that environment, you give them a chance, you let them prosper, you let them become entrepreneurs, and you let them succeed. Will it solve everything? No, nothing rarely does. Uh, But would it be a step in the right direction? It would be. So I was very pleased with the Supreme Court decision. Most definitely. And with that, we have to say goodbye, Joe. Man, this just goes by way too quick. We've had to do this again. Thanks for being our guest here on Lifeline, man. My pleasure. Hopefully we'll do it again real soon, Andy. Oh, we will. I promise you that much. Hey, let's take a time out, pay some bills, check some traffic. Off to the KFAX Traffic Center we go with another...
And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Hey, welcome back to Lifeline. Andy Froyland in for Craig Roberts. Joining me now is a dear friend of mine who is also the founder and president of Center for Cultural Leadership. He is uh, Andrew Sandlin, Doc Sandlin, as they like to call him. You can find more about him at DocSandlin.com, ChristianCulture.com. Andrew, thanks for joining us, and welcome to Lifeline, brother. Thank you, Andy. Appreciate you so much and all you've done all these years. Hey, it's a delight having you on. I've got just one question for you. Why'd you do it? Why did you, why, you know, it's like this old SNL skit, you know, uh, land sharks outside knocking on the door going, candy gram, candy gram, and you went ahead and opened up the door for 2020. What'd you do that for? <laughs> well, yeah, I guess uh, you have to go back to God's sovereignty and uh, he's the one who's in charge, but I guess that's the best uh, answer. He's the one that's laying out the path. He is. In the meantime, though, I I guess where I'd like to start with you tonight is... Uh, I mean, I could I could ask the big question: How did we get here? Uh, I think probably a more specific question might be: How did the church end up where we're at? And is it is it really as ineffective as it is looking through my eyes, or am I missing something? Yeah, that's a good question, Andy. I think in answer to the latter, uh, it is. Uh, that doesn't mean things can't change and change dramatically. But I think a realistic assessment is the one you gave. The church is rather ineffective. There are probably a lot of answers. I'll mention uh, two or three of them. Uh, I think, for one thing, uh, the church has become just highly professionalized and um, entertainment-centered and uh, has gotten away from the centrality of the Word, the preaching of the Word, and uh, the power of prayer, and uh, seeking to please God uh, in all things rather than attempt to uh, keep the ties up, keep people coming in, and the, and the way of American celebrity, celebrity pastors. Uh, I think another, and maybe a more specific answer in, in the cases of uh, both COVID and the tragic uh, racial tension we have, uh, the church hasn't really addressed uh, often these issues from a biblical uh, perspective. The church has been pietistic in the worst way. Uh, piety, of course, is godly and good, but pietism is the notion that we can reduce our responsibilities to sort of personal devotional time and going to church on Sunday. Uh, the church actually needs to stand up and declare the full truth of God in all areas of life. And largely the church has failed at that. And so really she didn't have, from her standpoint at least, resources at her disposal to address these issues. So she just sort of sat down and cowered back and didn't uh, speak uh, independently and boldly on the authority of the Word. There's a lot more, Andy, but I think those are two things that come immediately to mind. Well, yeah, and let's let's just dive right in at that point then. Uh, as far as the church is concerned, and again, I, I may be off track a bit. I kind of don't think so. But uh, for me, anyway, as I, as I survey uh, our country, specifically American culture Christianity, sin seems to be absent, doesn't it? Oh, my, yes. I was just uh, reading something about that. Uh, I think uh, reading and writing, that's true. Uh, it's really remarkable one hears very little about that word. We hear about brokenness and uh, failure. Mistakes. And, and mistakes. But the notion of sin is vital. Uh, you know, here, I think there's a fundamental problem here, and I think our forebears in this as in much else are much wiser than we. They understood the importance of the law. 
God's law, not, of course, as a means of salvation or justification. That would be heresy. But nonetheless, the law has a vital role in bringing deep conviction of sin. Uh, the reason that we have uh, such little concern for sin today, or even don't even talk about it, almost don't talk about it in many churches, is we don't talk about the authority of God's law and bringing people under deep, con- deep conviction. And one reason there are not many vital conversions today is people are not converted from anything. We know the gospel is the good news, the euangelion, the evangel, but the good news occurs against the backdrop of bad news. What's the bad news? Well, we stand under God's judgment because of our sin. We've broken his law. And if we don't turn to Christ, we'll be judged eternally. That's not a popular idea, but that is, Andy, the Bible's idea. Yeah. It's the Christian's idea. The law is not preached to bring people under deep conviction of sin so that they'll turn, so they'll scamper immediately to Jesus Christ as their only hope. Sadly, too many pulpits and churches don't preach the law of God to bring men under and women under deep conviction of sin. And that's why I think we have such a tepid and weak faith today. Well, it's that whole notion of uh, God has a marvelous plan for you for your life. You're right. We we have we've bypassed the need and gone straight to the desire and the feel good, and and that really is a problem. Yes, it really is remarkable how American, even evangelical Christianity, has adjusted itself to that. Uh, the appeal that you said is very prominent. A lot of sermons are basically. Uh, notions of the idea that Jesus is here to uh, sort of help us uh, be successes in life. And he's sort of, Jesus is sort of our life coach. And have problems and difficulties, you know, sadness, drug addiction, alcohol addiction, sex addiction, and so on. Well, Jesus will come along and help cure those things and sort of help you to become successful. Uh, but they're, the message of the cross and the resurrection, Andy, is a deeply radical message. And at its roots of the fact that man is radically sinful. Sin is a deep thing in my heart and yours and all of our listeners, unless it's dealt with by the cross and by the resurrection, the true gospel, so that we're under conviction and cast ourselves entirely on Christ. There's no hope. Again, that's not a popular message today. Uh, there's the social gospel, uh, social justice message, and of course there is a biblical form of social justice or righteousness, uh, but at root, everything is about the gospel of Jesus Christ and human sinfulness and the need to... Uh, get rid of sin, and that's only by the cross. That's not a message that is pro- uh, popular at all. Well, no, and it, in fact, it's quite offensive, which then, uh, you know, we, we create a generation or two of non-offensive gospel from the pulpit, and it's no wonder that Christians left and right are going, oh, yeah, tear, tear it all down. Oh, racism, we, oh, forgive me, forgive me, and, and I'm so sorry, I'm not a, I didn't mean to be a racist, and and we find ourselves where we're at today, don't we? Yes. You know, you may really touch on a very powerful point there, Andy. Uh, I think a lot of people don't really know what sin is, you see, because they don't know that God alone defines sin. They don't know the depth of it. They're, <laughs> oddly enough, they're quick to acknowledge a sinfulness for which they might probably not be guilty, but don't understand the very deep sin of which they actually uh, are guilty. They've had never had to confront what sin is. According yeah. to First John and the rest of Scripture, sin is breaking in a violation of God's law. And uh, if we don't come to terms with the fact that we have violated God's standard and would desperately need the gospel of Jesus Christ, his atoning death on the cross and his bodily resurrection and trust entirely in him, then all of these other things will come in and will appear to be little minor violations uh, when really it's the, the depth of our sinfulness that has to be addressed. 
I think between uh, our churches, which uh, the theology has seeped into our families, you see it left and right, and now you see it in our own culture, we have this whole idea and notion that we can compromise, barter, negotiate, or reason with sin, and really the Scripture is the exact opposite, isn't it? We've got to kill it. Yes, it is. Um, Boy, I think uh, when you mentioned that, uh, I was thinking immediately of Paul's language in Romans 6, and it's used elsewhere in the Bible. But it's, it's a decisive language, dead to sin, dead to sin and alive to righteousness. Sin actually has to die in our lives. Now, that doesn't mean that we will be sinlessly perfect in this life, but the principle of sin, the power of sin, the penalty of sin, has to be dealt with decisively. Nothing less than something as radical as the death of Christ on the cross can defeat something as radically evil as sin. If you want, people talk about, well, I'm not sure I believe in the law of God or God's justice. Well, if you want to see the eternal uh, authority of the law of God, just look at the cross. Because if God would not allow his own precious son to escape the terms of the law, not on his behalf, of course, he, did, he wasn't a sinner, but in our place. If God did not allow his own son to escape the terms of the law, how in the world do we think that we will? Exactly. You know, we've got to take a time out here, Andrew. Uh, but when we come back, I want to pick up where we're leaving off right here and see how it plays out. What what should church look like? What should we as Christians look like in this culture we find ourselves in the middle of, especially in light of racism? Uh, that This term is being thrown about and ran over with a Mack truck, and I'd, I'd like to get your take on a couple of thoughts here. We need to take a quick time out. My guest is Andrew Sandler. Andrew Sandlin, I, I could use Mr. Tongue and Mr. Lips. Together they form words, and they'll work, Andy. <laughs> Founder, President, Center for Cultural Leadership, ChristianCulture.com, DocSandlin.com, that's D-O-C-S-A-N-D-L-I-N.com. Great places if you want to know more about our guest here tonight on Lifeline. Off to the KFAX Traffic Center. <laughs> And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We are back. It's Lifeline. Andy Froyland in for Craig Roberts. Tonight, my guest is Andrew Sandlin, founder, president, Center for Cultural Leadership. Uh, you can find a, a, a lot of his writings can be found at DocSandlin.com. That's D-O-C-S-A-N-D-L-I-N.com. Also, ChristianCulture.com, if you want to know more about the Center for Cultural Leadership. A couple of great resources on the Internet. I highly recommend them. Andrew, before the break, we were talking about the fact that uh, I think the church, by and large, has lost its way uh, spiritually speaking. And, you know, uh, just as a, an aside, and maybe you can uh, add to this a bit, I, I got to thinking, you look at history, not just in Scripture, but since then, each and every country has about a 500-year span before God finally says, all right, enough. We spiral downward enough to where God is done. And we've still got about another 150, 200 years to go at that kind of time frame here in the U.S., unless you look at our current culture and, you know, the the perfect storm that seems to be brewing on the near horizon. And I can't help but wonder, 
again, and we kind of touched on this just a moment ago, God usually spares a country if there is enough there worth sparing as far as a representation of himself and his church. Man, I for all of the numbers that a lot of these megachurches are pumping at us, I don't see much of that representation. Do you? No. Uh, it's interesting you would say that again. I think we're thinking along the same line, though we haven't talked for a while. I've talked with a number of friends about that very thing. Uh, of course, we need to um, avoid the so-called Elijah complex. You know, I right. alone are the only ones left. Right. But having said that, we do have objectively uh, eyes and ears, and we can look around and we can be acquainted, particularly in this days of the Internet. And the fact is, proportionally speaking, there are many fewer that are faithful to a virile biblical Christianity than ever. And while there are a handful of large churches that are faithful, sadly, many are not. I mean, have been reduced largely to a religious entertainment centers. Yeah. Uh, the laser the laser light show when you go on with respect to the music and the worship, the preaching is largely sort of a self-help, a religious therapeutic self-help uh, preaching, and the programs are not based on the preaching of the gospel in its fullness, but sort of addiction recovery programs, and there's nothing wrong with that, I must say, but that's not a substitute for the gospel. So our churches have just kind of uh, degenerated, and sadly, when we ask ourselves, are there enough? Uh, in the ancient case was, of course, Abraham talking about Lot and sparing Sodom and so on. I don't know. We don't know. All we can do is pray for revival and reformation. I do believe in my eschatology, and there are different eschatologies, of course, that there will be a great reformation and revival one day, but the Bible nowhere says it will be in the United States. Right, right. Uh, it could be in, in sub-Saharan Africa, it could be in South South America, it could be in Asia. Uh, the question of our country is up in the air. The fact is, well, one thing is not up in the air. It's in a tragic, it's in a tragic situation, and it's largely because our churches have so uh, defected from the faith. Well, in, in fact, you even wrote about that, and I, I was hoping you would discuss this a bit further. Uh, you, you recently wrote an article called Resistant Theology, as, as opposed to Not Resignation Theology, and it seems yeah. as though uh, we have. We, we have and, and, it, and it took COVID-19 to really put a, a spotlight on this that we have. We've, we've kind of resigned ourselves to this resignation theology. Oh, okay, sirrah, sirrah, you know, the uh, whatever will be, will be theology, as opposed to resistant theology. So what is the difference, and what does resistant theology look like, and how do we get back to it? Mm, boy, great question. Yeah, resistance theology means, and this is a way of thinking that is entirely biblical, but it's remarkable how many Christians just don't think this way. God's goal uh, in sending His Son, and in preparation for sending His Son, was to do away with, uh, eventually do away with evil in the world. So every time we see evil, it is a godly thing to fight and oppose that evil, wherever it is. First, of course, in our own lives, not hypocritically opposing it outside, but not opposing it in our own hearts. Of course, we should begin with ourselves. But then in our getting rid of evil in our families, and of course in our churches, and then moving outward to culture. Resignation theology says, here's one thing, well, because the Bible teaches a God's sovereignty and predestination, maybe this, all of this stuff God is doing it, and I dare not fight evil, because I could be fighting the hand of God. Well, the difficulty with that is, first, we don't know specifically what God's will is on a number of these cases, which called his secret will for a reason. Right. But we do know his revealed will. So rather than trying to peer into the mind of God on what God is doing, let's look in the Word of God and see what he tells us to do 
same principle with evangelizing. People say, does the Bible teach election? Yes, it does. But uh, the fact is, we need to assume that everybody in the world can be saved. At least that's our operating principle, so we preach the gospel to, uh, to everyone. Well, the same is true in fighting evil. And in churches, every single evil that is seen, in principle at least, the church must oppose. doesn't mean every sermon must contain it. But in our families and everywhere, whether it's uh, the evil of uh, the homosexualization of culture, uh, whether it is the evil of racism we could talk more about later, where, whether it is the evil of apostasy in one's heart from the Lord, whether it is the evil of ungodly materialism, uh, whether it is the evil of the entertainment culture. I mean, the, the biblical approach is to put sin to death. Hmm. That's kind of the literal language Paul uses in Romans chapter 6. Mortify it, which means put it to death, kill it kill sin. Unfortunately, we do not have a group of people today that are interested in killing sin. Hmm. So what does resistant theology look like, practically speaking? If you were to walk out in the streets these days, how would you see it lived out? I think, uh, let me give you several examples of that. Paul says uh, in Ephesians, have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove or expose them. Uh, I was the great uh, commentator, Reformation man, John Calvin, who said, in essence, he says, we don't have the luxury of obeying the first part of that verse and not the second. <laughs> so the first thing I would say, Andy, is after we clean up our own hearts and confess our own sin, wherever we are, we're to use our gifts that we have and uh, the place that God has placed us to expose evil. It doesn't mean we walk up to everybody on the streets that's sinning and, and tell them that they're sinful. But as God places us in situations where our voice can be heard, we need to expose evil and say, do you realize that is wrong? We need to, if we're, depending on the position we're in, whether it is at a, at a job site or whether it is as uh, the work that you're doing, whether it is the work with CCL that I'm doing, if you're working selling automobiles, if you're working writing code, use the position that you're in to expose evil. That's not really popular. And it sounds very negative, but that's what Paul precisely says that we're called to do. In every single situation God's called us to, he has called us to live a righteous life and also to expose evil. One reason there's such a pervasiveness of evil today is because Christians simply do not speak up. Now, sometimes, of course, speaking alone is not enough. We may have to go so far, tragically, uh, though some of our ancestors have done it, as to give our lives for the faith. We may end up going to jail or losing our jobs. Some have lost their jobs simply because they've spoken up for the truth. But speaking up is right, and speaking up is necessary. And if we don't resist evil wherever we see it, then eventually evil could triumph. I, I remember a friend of mine, his wife uh, got uh, T-boned in their, in their family minivan. And the guy that T-boned him clearly ran a red light and totaled the van. And their insurance, the guy's insurance company, came, came back and said, oh, it's your fault and we're not going to pay out. My friend's response was, well, turn the other cheek. I'm a Christian, so okay. Brother, I can't tell you how frustrated I was. And and the reason I bring that story up, that was like 20 years ago. I see yeah. that in mass today, as, as yeah. especially with the current issues that we're facing in our culture. Yeah, yeah. Now you're getting, now I understand. I didn't quite understand the gist of your question before, but now, yeah, that's one specific concrete situation. No, the idea when there is specific injustice that is done in society, even to you, injustice is a violation of God's standards of righteousness. Our responsibility is to push back 
There's not something unchristian about that. Right. The, the, the issue of turning the other cheek in, uh, uh, in the book of Matthew refers to someone who is specifically, physically persecuting you as a Christian. When there is a government situation like that, when Christians are in the minority and are being persecuted. For instance, to Christians who are in, the, in the North Korea right now, if a soldier comes along and demands something harsh, their goal is not to turn around and punch people in the face. I, that's the biblical idea. But that's very different from standing for biblical righteousness when one is able to do so, uh, in a culture in which one is able to do so. The it, case in which you said, yeah, yeah, go, it, no, you're it, right. I was, I was just going to yeah. say, especially in, in, in the face of unrighteousness, uh, you know, and, oh. and, and clearly that was, you know, there's an unrighteous action going. It's not so much that this person was, was due uh, a new van because it was that person's fault, but there's an unrighteous approach to life going on, and it is our responsibility to stand up against that, right? Yeah, yeah, Andy. Now, one example is we're uh, is of course what's been happening recently: the massive toppling uh, of uh, of monuments uh, under the guise, well, they're all racists or whatever. Well, we found just in the last few days, as we're recording this, that that really wasn't the case at all with the toppling or attack of. <laughs> of Abraham Lincoln's monument, and, right. and uh, Ulysses S. Grant, and now even uh, one famous uh, Black Lives Matter leftist saying we need to take down any images of Jesus Christ. I realize some churches don't believe there should be images at all, but the principle right. of the matter is that the issue is really not race. The issue is the attempt to destroy Christian culture. And as a matter of fact, there were deeply flawed individuals, deeply flawed individuals in the past, all over, Winston Churchill uh, and, and many, many others that had monuments, we don't we don't erect the monuments to these men or women, as the case may be, in recognition of their sin, but in recognition of their accomplishments. Right. So to tear them down is really an attempt to say it's a it is a form of it is an utter form of violent Phariseeism. That we ourselves know the truth, we ourselves are better, we ourselves, in essence, are perfect people. They committed a particular sin that is worse than any other sin. And therefore, their memory seems to be toppled and erased. Now, I said all that to say this very quickly, Andy. Not just police officers, but Christians need to loudly, strongly oppose that and not applaud that. They also don't need to, white Christians do not need to get down on their knees and worship in the face of black Christians. And black Christians should not permit it. Yes, there's been racism in the country. There's been racism in virtually every culture since racists have appeared on the earth. But this is a false narrative, and it's, lead, it, it's leading us away from the faith, which is the absolute unity. The only color that matters in the end, Andy, is the absolute red color of the blood of Jesus Christ in which all Christians are washed. Amen. Take a break. Uh, hold the thought. I want to continue right where you're at, brother, uh, but we've got to take a time out and pay some bills. So let's take a quick time out. My guest is Andrew Sandlin. This is Lifeline here on KFAX, off to the KFAX Traffic Center with a... And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. And we are back. It's Lifeline, Andy Froyland, my guest, Andrew Sandlin. We're uh, taking a look at where we find ourselves, spiritually speaking, in the culture that we find ourselves in the midst of, kind of a perfect storm almost. 
Just before the break, Andrew, we were talking about the fact that, uh, you know, we don't need to apologize for the past and we shouldn't be doing some of these crazy things. Um, Just to clarify, uh, because there are there are folks out there saying that, uh, well, like you said a moment ago, we've got to take down all the all the statues of Jesus. Uh, He's you know, that's 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 white supremacist talk right there. And we can't have that. Do And you mentioned just before the break, you know, we shouldn't be out there worshiping God on our knees in front of black people, and black people shouldn't be doing that for us. Are we trying to, and can we actually even look for forgiveness for something that happened generations ago that more often than not, my ancestry doesn't even reach into it, let alone the guy I'm standing in front of? No, we can't. And I had a friend who passed away some years ago, a very wise, intelligent Christian scholar, and he called this something, Andy. He called it easy virtue. What he means by that, we would today I might call it a virtue signaling. I like to call it a sort of a theatrical virtue, um, sort of uh, repentance theater. Yeah. Uh, it, it's basically showing people outwardly that we are ex- we are not among all of those uh, uh, nutballs who uh, refuse to get uh, onto the great train of social progress, uh, of uh, a sort of uh, false virtuous social progress, and uh, look at us, look what we can do, and we truly are repentant and so on, while not confessing what are genuine sins. That's called easy virtue and uh, repentance theater. And uh, that's tragically what's going on in much of the evangelical church because it's not been properly taught. But I think in many cases, um, that's an apt description of what we see going on. Well, and it seems to me, correct me if I'm wrong, didn't you even write something on uh, forgiveness, um, who to forgive, when to forgive, and, and is it something that we should be doing all the time? Um, yeah, no, yeah, you're must, right. Must, uh, yeah, uh, must, oh, no, you didn't no, write great, it. Uh, Canada did. Must yes, Christians, he did. did. Yeah, oh, no, must yeah, Christian, the Bible, uh, Forgiveness requires objective sin, and it requires the one who uh, committed the sin to repent, and then there can be genuine forgiveness. But the notion of, and uh, this is sounds sadly heretical to some evangelicals, but they're dead wrong. For us to forgive people who have not repented is false. The Bible says we forgive as God does, and He doesn't forgive those who don't repent. Yeah. If those if people refuse to repent, uh, who uh, for uh, and trust in Jesus Christ, they'll end up eternally separated from God in hell. Now uh, that doesn't sound like a pious answer, but that's a biblical answer, because repentance isn't about us. That is uh, the person offended and our feelings and whether we hold grudges. It's about God's standard. It's about whether things are made right with God, and they're made right with God by genuine, true repentance. You, 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 you've got an English uh, heritage to you, correct? Yes. Yeah. Uh, so, so if I if I come to you and say, "Look, you know, uh, Revolutionary War, brother, I am so sorry, man." Uh, you know, we we hurt you and and we sloughed you off, and and I apologize. How does that make you feel? Yes, I, the, the, the coverage wasn't really good there. Can you ask that one more time, Andy? I couldn't hear you. I, well, my, my, my thought is, uh, you know, if I were to ask you to forgive me for throwing off the shackles of your ancestors' rule here in America during the Revolutionary War, 
is, is that something that you can receive, let alone understand me giving? No, of course not. Um, it's a false way of thinking. And I guess there is a really pernicious bottom line uh, to this, Andy, and that is it, it's something that can never really be resolved. You see, this is why the whole attack on whiteness uh, is such a pernicious attack of, of modern Marxism or cultural Marxism. Of course, it'd be just as true in the reverse, obviously, a sure. 200 years ago, blackness. But today, that's the issue. Well, how does one, this is the whole notion of systemic racism. I mean, how does one uh, repent for being white? Well, we were made white. One yeah. can't repent for being white or black or one's ancestry. And that's actually to call uh, in God's goodness, really. That's, God, that's precisely God's good providence. So uh, this sort of repentance for systemic racism, which is a false moniker, and it's a false narrative, is there racism? You bet. Uh, is it a part of the legal system uh, of law enforcement? No. Of, uh, of major businesses? No. Of churches? No. Just the fact that there are examples doesn't mean the system is inherently corrupt, uh, certainly not in this sense. Um, so, but the, the, the problem with this is among so-called progressives, it will always give them an opportunity for grievance. It's, a, it's an example of grievance culture. We can always have grievances because it will never be enough to change. There will always be something else to liberate. This is a mark of uh, Marxism from the 19th century and modern or cultural Marxism. Well, Lord willing, I mean, you know, uh, I am on Lifeline again tomorrow night and Thursday night. Lord willing, we will have a couple of guests because I really am curious about this. Uh, is, is one one white person saying, please forgive me, going to satiate and satisfy a, a, a black person for all the ills and grievances they believe they have when it comes to this issue of racism? No, uh, and here's something. No, this, Andy, if I can jump in there, here's yeah, something that's yeah. really critical from Ephesians 2. We hear a lot of talk about racial reconciliation today, and the Bible actually discusses what we call racial, racial reconciliation. And according to Ephesians chapter 2, we have a name for that. It's called the gospel. Uh, Paul very clearly says that all of the walls, racial walls, Jew and Gentile at the time, are broken down, and we're all one in Jesus Christ. Now, think with me here, and I hope the audience will also. So uh, the gospel is not a call to pursue racial reconciliation for 30 or 100 or 500 years. The gospel is racial reconciliation. Hmm. When we've given our hearts to God, trusted in Christ, it doesn't matter what color is, what, what the color is, what the background is. We're united in Jesus Christ and called to treat one another as brother and sister. That the gospel is racial reconciliation. Now, listen carefully to me. I, when we have all sorts of calls for additional racial reconciliation not rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ, we're really saying the gospel we preach is not effectual, or we don't have confidence in the gospel. Mm. Where the gospel does its deepest work, racism eventually evaporates. And in true churches, it certainly does. Well, I, you know, personally, I, I'm kind of, I'm, I'm torn. I really don't, especially when it comes to reparations. That's At one part of me says really silly. The other part sits there and thinks, hmm, I wonder if I can get money from the Catholic Church for my ancestors being taken to the <laughs> right. stake. <laughs> I'm sorry. That, that was too soon? Too soon? <laughs> At the at, at at the end of the day, I believe you're absolutely right, and we've lost sight of the fact that 
um, there is much more to it than just the color of one's skin. Uh, yeah. We we tend to live, at least as believers in Christ, we see character more than color. And yeah. a lot of people I find, and this is this hints at this Marxism, this underlying theme of n- no no reconciliation needed. I just want my Marxism to be promoted. Um, the the whole idea that I don't want to talk about my character; it's only my color, and that's what matters. And we lose sight of everything else that's going on around us, don't we? Yeah, that also, as you well know, is a, sadly and ironically is a deviation from the civil rights vision of Martin Luther King. Yes. Uh, we do have to disagree with him, certainly theologically. So, tragically, he was a liberal. But he was right when he said, I long for the day when my children won't be judged by the color of their skin, by the content of their character. Yes. Yet that's, that is not. If you say that today, as I do, and as you do, there are many people, modern leftists, progressives, will say that's racist wow. uh, because we want to sort of, in, in a sense, resegregate, at least in people's minds. And we want to exalt different races at the expense of another. Well, when the KKK did that 150, 100 years ago, that was profoundly evil and sinful. Well, when the new left does that and cultural Marxists do that today, it's equally sinful. It's wrong to judge on the basis of melanin, the color of skin. We're all, we're all, Paul says we're made of one blood, all nations, so that we can seek the Lord. Uh, that's the real difference. In, in the Bible, there are only really two races, if I may, when you get right down to it. There's the race of the first Adam, and there's the race of the second Adam. The race of the first Adam is all of those who are born into sin and desperately need the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Then there's the race of the second Adam, according to Romans chapter 5. And of course, that's Jesus himself. We're united to him, we become members of a new race, not a not of racial color, but of a new racial leader. Jesus Christ is the leader of the new race. That is the only sort of race the Bible really has any interest in. And that is where we'll close out our time with Andrew Sandlin here on Lifeline. And it's also where we close out our time all together here tonight. I want to thank you for joining us here this evening. It's been a privilege and a pleasure filling in for Craig Roberts. I get to do it again tomorrow night and then uh, Thursday. So uh, we'll see you tomorrow night. Thanks, Joel, for running all the knobs, making sure this program is uh, sounding the way it's supposed to, coming out those woofers and treaters of everybody else's radios. And uh, Wanda Sanchez, our producer, for putting this together. The trifecta is rounded out, of course, by your ears as always. Until tomorrow night. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved. Thank you.